You can be praying, uh, and just so you can kind of know what's going on up there in Whitaker's, uh, if Lee hasn't told you already, which, uh, which may be the case. So, <laughs> so let me tell you a few things. I'm in charge of the uh, editorial department, uh, which now I know back in the day used to just be one person, an editor, uh, and now, and before that was just pretty much Frank, right? But uh, now it has five people uh, who are working tirelessly to produce new content. So that's what I can speak to. You'll have to ask Lee about how everything's going in the warehouse. But I'll tell you what we're working on, what uh, is in the works, what we're excited about. Uh, so by God's grace, as we continue to equip Bible teachers in the classroom and in churches uh, to magnify the majesty of God, we're excited uh, to be wrapping up an elementary revision of all of our elementary curriculum We've been working our way back from sixth grade uh, backwards, and we should be finishing that uh, by the end of uh, January, getting that to the printer, and we'll have a brand new edition. Fourth edition will be complete of elementary. Now, we also have an apologetic study that's wrapping up. Uh, one of our board members, Mark Farnham, uh, wrote a study on apologetics for high school students. It's called Approachable Apologetics, Sharing and Defending Your Faith. So. Uh, our hope is that the Lord will use this for high schoolers uh, in their lives to, uh, to not only be able to uh, interact with secular worldviews and, uh, and non-Christian views and be able to defend the faith, but also just have a very strong understanding of what the Christian faith says uh, and how they can share that with others to reach the lost with the gospel. Uh, so those are some of the big things we have going on for school. We have a new devotional coming out soon. Uh, we have some devotional books. Maybe you've read some of them before. We have uh, one on the book of, uh, well, two really on Proverbs, Wisdom for Parents and Apples for Teachers. I don't know if you've ever seen these. Uh, we have another one on the book of Psalms. And then the one that's wrapping up is on the book of Ecclesiastes coming out. And it's called Meaning for Your Labor. Uh, to just a verse-by-verse -verse devotional, 180-day devotional on the book of Ecclesiastes. And then a couple church studies uh, in the works. The one that will come out the soonest is on the book of Colossians uh, coming out next year. And then we have some other things a little looking ahead on the calendar that we hope to knock out soon. Uh, include a Spanish translation of all of our elementary studies. We're excited. Uh, someone right now is translating those into Spanish for us. Uh, a native speaker, a professional translator, so we'll be able to uh, send those abroad and even in the United States uh, to reach Spanish-speaking students in the classroom and, uh, and lots of other things. You can talk to me afterwards if you want to know more details, but those are the most, uh, the things closest on our radar that we're working on. Uh, so you can pray for us for that end, that we continue to produce good material and that, Lord, that the Lord would use that uh, the material we're producing in classrooms and churches and homeschool classrooms too. Homeschoolers also uh, use our material. So that's the quick ministry update on positive action for Christ. And uh, please do pray for us. We thank you uh, for those who are praying for us as we continue to work up there uh, in Whitakers. So I'll, uh, you know, I jumped the gun here, too, because I was supposed to do scripture reading first. So now we're going to shift gear. I'm glad to knock that out of the way first. Now let's focus. This will transition much better uh, to the message. Let's do our scripture reading. Uh, you can uh, follow along with me. Pastor Dan said this can be a little longer. I think you're going through the book of Genesis right now. Uh, we're going to stay in the Old Testament, 
But we are going to be in Leviticus again today from uh, picking up where I left off last last time just because it fits so well uh, with Thanksgiving on the calendar. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to start in Leviticus 3 and read the entire chapter. It's not super long. And then I'm going to jump to chapter 7 and read a few more verses there. But I'll cue you so you know when to make that leap and what verse to pick up on. But we're going to start in Leviticus 3. And we are uh, reading about the peace offering. And here's how it begins. Leviticus 3 begins this way. When his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood all around the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. And Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire as an offering made by fire a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb as his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar." Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord, its fat and the whole fat tail, which he shall remove close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire to the Lord." And if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on its head and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar. Then he shall offer from it his offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, And the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. And now Leviticus 7, 11 through 38. Leviticus 7.11 begins, This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes, as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread, 
with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. And from it, he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice. But on the next day, the remainder of it also may be eaten. The remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire. And if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted, nor shall it be imputed to him. It shall be an abomination to him who offers it, and the person who eats of it shall bear guilt. The flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, such as human uncleanness or unclean animal or any abominable unclean thing, and who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat. And the fat of an animal that dies naturally, and the fat of what is torn by wild beasts, may be used in any other way, but you shall by no means eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal, of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or beast. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat with the breast he shall bring, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. Also, the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offering. He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for his part. For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. This is the consecrated portion for Aaron and his sons from the offerings made by fire to the Lord. On the day when Moses presented them to minister to the Lord as priests, the Lord commanded this to be given to them by children of Israel on the day that he anointed them by a statute forever throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the consecrations, and the sacrifice of the peace offering which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai 
on the day when he commanded the children of Israel to offer their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning to gather and worship. We thank you that we can study the wonders we behold in your word, the glory of Christ and uh, your wonderful message to us. We ask that our hearts will be opened, that uh, we would see as we study uh, the very unfamiliar and uh, odd, sometimes seeming uh, practices that you gave the people of Israel. Uh, we can see that these point us to Christ. They direct our attention to his sacrifice and what you accomplished through his wonderful work for us. We praise you for that. We ask that Christ would be magnified here, that your name would be glorified, that we would be encouraged and thankful, and that we would respond uh, with heartfelt emotion in our hearts, that we'd be moved by what you've done for us, uh, that we'd be moved not only in our emotions, but also that we'd be moved to action, that we would serve, uh, that we would spread the good news of Christ, and that we would uh, encourage other believers uh, to live in conformity to Christ, and that we would uh, challenge ourselves uh, to grow and to put off the old and put on the new, uh, to give you glory and live as new creatures as you've called us to do. We thank you for this time, and we ask that our hearts will be attentive to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as I spoke last time from the book of Leviticus, and then when Pastor Dan asked me to speak again, I looked at what the next message would be, and I saw that it fits really well with uh, the upcoming holiday of Thanksgiving. And I, and I imagine he may very well preach or some, speak to that end next Sunday. So I don't know if you're getting two Thanksgiving messages, but this is a message that could stand alone without Thanksgiving, uh, but it does tie in very well, and I'll use that a bit to launch in here. So as you think about celebrating Thanksgiving, I know that people do this differently. Some people are very traditional. I don't know what the case is for you. You might very well have a big meal, big turkey, big pot of stuffing on the table and sweet potatoes. Uh, maybe that's what you do. Maybe you're a little less traditional. Uh, our family, I know, different depending on what, uh, what's going on in our lives. We've done some non-traditional Thanksgivings as we celebrate holidays. Uh, sometimes in the past, before kids, uh, we, Christy and I, I think one year at least, went to Cracker Barrel. Has anyone ever done a Cracker Barrel Thanksgiving, gone to Cracker Barrel for Thanksgiving? Anybody? None of you guys? You have. Good, good, good. Hey, it, it'll be open. You can go this weekend or this Thursday, hop on down to Cracker Barrel, and you can see uh, the good meal there that they offer. Uh, let's see. Who's ever done Chinese food for Thanksgiving or Christmas? We'll just tie all holidays. Anybody ever done Chinese food for a holiday meal? No? You people have not lived. Nobody, really? Are you being honest? Okay, maybe we're just the weirdos, uh, and we've, we've done these things. What would your ideal meal be, though, if you didn't have to give in to tradition? Maybe you love tradition, but what would you do if you were putting your ideal meal together? What's the perfect meal in your book, if you could pick? What would you uh, put on the table to share with friends and family to celebrate some special occasion, uh, like a holiday, uh, or as, as a church family, if you got to have the the whole church family, and you pick the meal, what would it be if you were in charge of that? We all like different things, uh, but we do like to celebrate with meals, don't we? We have church potlucks, uh, we have holiday meals, we have big meals of family. When a special occasion occurs, you might go out to eat uh, and, and mark the occasion that way. And the people of Israel were no different. They were real people, just like us, who did things a lot like us. And meals were a way to celebrate 
together. And they had a lot to celebrate. As you study the Old Testament, you see they had different feasts to observe, celebrations. Uh, but this sacrifice is unique among the sacrifices, this peace offering in Leviticus 3, because it gave the people of Israel an opportunity, a concentrated opportunity to celebrate a special truth. And that truth was having peace with God. The peace offering was an opportunity for the people of Israel to celebrate that God had done something wonderful for them and he established, made possible, a peaceful relationship with his covenant people. And now as we look back at this, the peace offering does something for us. It should. It reminds us, the church, it reminds us that enjoying peace with God is a tremendous, undeserved blessing. Just as it was for the people of Israel, we have a wonderful relationship with God, a relationship of peace that we're going to look at, and that should make our hearts thankful. God demands perfection, and as, as sinners, we know we can't meet that righteous standard, but Jesus did that for us, and that's what we, what we see when we look at the gospel message, how that we were God's enemies, but the sacrifice of Jesus made a relationship with God, a peaceful relationship with God, possible. And as we look at the sacrifices in Leviticus, there's five of them in the opening of Leviticus. And if you're just giving them a cursory reading, just seems like a lot of repetition and unfamiliar things, killing animals and burning them and offering things and taking them to the priests. But these rules were there for a reason. And the sacrifices varied, and each one tells us something different. But depending on the sacrifice, uh, you, you followed different procedures for them. Sometimes you burned all of the animals. Sometimes you burned parts of it. And sometimes uh, different parts of the animal went to the priests for them to get. Uh, that was to provide for them. So they had food to eat. And for this one, as I mentioned, what's unique about it is that the offerer, the person who brought this sacrifice to the tabernacle or the temple, when they brought the sacrifice, they got to keep a part of it to enjoy under very directed circumstances uh, as a celebratory meal together. So as, as I was looking in scripture, trying to find, do we see anybody doing this? Do we see an instance in scripture where someone offered this sacrifice? And I think uh, as if you look in 1 Samuel, you can look there if you want. I'll read just a few verses from there. But it looks like this may have been a peace offering that uh, is offered in 1 Samuel 1. And if you remember the very beginning of 1 Samuel, there's a man and his two wives, and he's offering sacrifices. That man's Elkanah, uh, his wife, uh, one of his wives is named Hannah, who has the child Samuel eventually, um, who would serve God. But let's, I'll just read 1 Samuel 1 and show you what I mean here about why I think this may be the peace offering. It says in 1 Samuel 1, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord were there. And whenever the time came 
for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. So here we have Elkanah faithfully offering this sacrifice to the Lord each year. They had the Mosaic law, and he and his family ate their portions of meat from, as a result of the sacrifice. Uh, so they had a relationship with the Lord. They were faithful worshipers, and they were enjoying a benefit of knowing God. They had the spiritual benefit of knowing God, and then as they offered this sacrifice, they got some of the meat. So this very well could have been the peace offering that was offered. And as we look at it today, we're going to see that the peace offering was something that could be offered for a variety of reasons. There were different reasons someone might want to offer this peace offering. And we're going to look at these reasons and apply them to today to us as believers to look at different reasons why we should celebrate having peace with God, just as they were celebrating this peace with God. And we're even going to look at some of that fat and blood that we read about and what we can learn about how that uh, can teach us something about our relationship with God. So the first reason uh, that someone would have offered this, uh, that we're going to see in a minute, as, and we'll look at those in just a minute, but first what I want to make clear uh, is that God offers peace. God offers peace. If we're going to look at the peace offering, let's first understand this, that we need peace with God just as Israel did because sin has separated humanity from God. The natural state of every human being in the world and all creation is an enemy of God, a sinner under God's condemnation. Enemies of God by choice and by nature, under God's wrath. But we know because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, that barrier of separation is removed for everyone who believes, and now we have been reconciled to God. Reconciliation, we talk about that just in everyday life when, when there's a conflict and then when the, the parties that are at war can be reconciled, whether we're talking about countries or uh, husband and wife that need to be reconciled or uh, two neighbors that are angry at each other over one person blowing leaves into their neighbor's yard, whatever. We see reconciliation all the time, but reconciliation for us means that now we are at peace with God instead of being at war with him. By our nature and by our own choice, we were God's enemies, rebels against him, at odds with him and his will. But by God's grace, because of Christ, he has made peace possible. He's provided that way of peace. And God made peace possible with the people of Israel, too. They had a special relationship with God, a covenant that God made with them. And they had a responsibility to uphold, but they still were coming to God by faith. And God was saving them by his grace. And they were responsible to uphold their side of this covenant. They, part of that involved offering these sacrifices. And as you look at these sacrifices uh, in Scripture, they, the burnt offering uh, was one of these that was necessary to deal with their sin. Their sin still had to be dealt with, even though these were anticipating the work of Christ that was still to occur these sacrifices were an ongoing responsibility they had to deal with their sin so that they could have peace with God. And if they were offer offering the proper sacrifices, 
with the proper attitudes, being obedient to God, then there could be peace between them and the Lord. So in Leviticus 3, we see that this offering, this peace offering, was intended to celebrate God's saving work, to celebrate the fact of peace that every believer can have. So uh, we read uh, Leviticus 3 already, and I do want to read just Leviticus 3, 1, and 5 again, because we're going to talk about it some in depth, because we read a lot of Leviticus there for a few minutes. So Leviticus 3, 1 through 5, if you would uh, just follow along again, it says this. When his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hands on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove. And Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If you're in a different Bible translation, depending on what you're reading, um, some Bible translations differ on the name for this. Instead of calling it a peace offering, some prefer to call it a fellowship offering. Uh, the Hebrew word for this sacrifice, shalem, is uh, probably closely related to the Hebrew word. Who knows the Hebrew word for peace? You probably know this one. Somebody in here does. Shalom, yes. We have a lot of Hebrew speakers in here. Right, shalom. So shalom and shalom, people see that close relationship between those words and say this offering uh, is a peace offering. Uh, others look at the aspect of what it's celebrating, this relationship with God, close fellowship, and they say let's call it a fellowship offering. Uh, either way, you're communicating the right idea here. We can accurately say that uh, this offering gave faithful worshipers uh, an opportunity to thank God for fellowship, which is a peaceful fellowship with God that they can have. So as with the burnt offering in Leviticus 1, the worshiper did a lot of the same things. There's a, a lot of overlap and similarity between the pattern here for these sacrifices. Uh, the animal had to be an unblemished animal. Couldn't be anything wrong with this sacrifice. And they would bring it to the tabernacle later, the temple, once that was built. This one could be, the, the animal could be either male or female, and it was slaughtered. Its blood was splattered on the altar by the priests, and then some of the animal, just a few parts here, the kidneys and the fat surrounding its internal organs, those were burned on the altar. Why the kidneys? Why kidneys? Why does God want kidneys? People have wondered about this, and it doesn't tell us all the, the, the details here. If there was some sort of symbolism that, was try, that God was communicating, we do know uh, how in the Old Testament, when, when people talked uh, about their emotions, how we talk about our heart today. If we're saying we feel something in our heart, like, I love you with all my heart, or I have pain, my heart hurts in, in this emotional pain. The way that uh, they would talk about that was they would talk about their kidneys for this. You would say, I love you with all my kidneys, or my kidneys hurt because you 
uh, left me for, you left me to go play with that friend over there. So these, their kidneys was how they talked about their emotional response to something. And it could be, this is speculation granted, uh, but people uh, would have gotten a sense of the weight here of what was being communicated with the kidneys as the center of emotion, like our heart. Uh, and to definitely, we, nobody would argue with this, that uh, as the sacrifice was being offered, God wanted this to be a response, a heartfelt emotional response where the people meant what they were doing. It wasn't just an empty, formal ritual, just some outward act. This was supposed to mean something. <clears throat> there were uh, many similarities between the different sacrifices, uh, like the ones I mentioned about the unblemished animal and that it was uh, being offered at the, the tabernacle or the temple. Um, but there are some differences. And from the, in Leviticus 3, you get a, a hint that this was going to be a meal enjoyed by the worshiper. And you get that more explicitly uh, in Leviticus uh, chapter 7. But here in 3, we notice that the animal was not killed inside the tabernacle like the burnt offering. It was killed at the entrance. And the thought here is, is that if it was taken inside, anything taken inside was fully consecrated to God and his use. So by not taking it in, uh, there, this animal could still be used uh, for consumption by uh, people outside. And uh, we do get in Leviticus 7 more explanation of that meal component. Uh, in Leviticus 7.15 though, it says the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. So after someone presented the parts that God wanted and those were going to be burned on the altar, then the rest, minus what went to the priests for them to eat, there was that bit that went to them, the breast and the thigh, uh, but the people got what was left and they could eat the meat of this animal. And meat was a, a, a special commodity that we, we, even today with prices now, meat's kind of a special thing, right? It's a, turned into a luxury, but meat was a special thing to enjoy. And this would have been an opportunity for a feast. You weren't offering this peace offering every day because you couldn't just, most people didn't have the wealth to offer uh, these animals on a regular basis. So when people did this, it was an opportunity to worship, to thank God for peace. And we're going now to look at three specific reasons why God says that they could offer this. And we'll make that application to three reasons we can have a response uh, applying the same reason the people of Israel would have responded. So the first of these, we respond with thanksgiving. We respond with thanksgiving. This was an opportunity to respond with thanks. And in Leviticus 7, 11 through 12, it says, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offering, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving or a thanksgiving offering, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. So lots of flour and oil and bread and oil there. But a worshiper could offer this peace offering as an expression of thanksgiving for some deliverance from God, some marvelous benefit, just to give God thanks because God did something great that they want to thank him for. And in addition to the animal portion, 
they also showed gratitude with this bread aspect. So you have the, the protein and then the, the carb here. And they would give a portion of this bread, one loaf, went to the priest, we find in Leviticus 7. Uh, so a little bit of the bread went to the priest, and they got to enjoy the rest with their meal. So they had meat and they had bread to celebrate the blessing of a special relationship with God. And we, as believers, as we all know, and as we're going to be uh, celebrating at Thanksgiving, reasons we are thankful. We, as believers, should be extremely thankful people, right? Thankful to God for all he has done. What reasons, just think to yourself here, what reasons would you give if you were you're put on the spot at Thanksgiving, you're going around the table, what would you say you were thankful for what God has done? What would you praise him for? What would you want to express appreciation for God's wonderful work, his benefits that he's blessed you with? And uh, as you look at scripture, scripture gives us uh, some examples. We can go beyond scripture here and thank him for anything from new shoes to a reliable car or a job or your, your senses, ability to smell, whatever. We have so much to be thankful for. But scripture, I'll give you a few just so you can uh, echo these thoughts in your heart too. Psalm 106.1 says, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Scripture tells us to be thankful that God is good and he's merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And very applicable to this, we know we deserve his wrath. And he gives us peace and eternal life and relationship with him. Scripture tells us uh, in the book of Psalms also, Psalm 107, 8, uh, to thank him for the wonderful things that he has done. It says in Psalm 107, 8, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, thanking him for his goodness again, he's good, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. When you read the Old Testament in the Psalms, uh, again and again, they're thanking God for his work of bringing them out of Egypt, out of captivity, bringing them into their land, and God was so good to them in those ways. And God has been so good to us. What wonderful works has God done for you in your life besides creating you and uh, the whatever circumstances he's placed you in, uh, but if you've come to Christ, he's saved you, someone shared the gospel with you, you heard the gospel in some way, he made that possible. Uh, he's growing you and working in your life to make you like Christ. He's given you a church family and an opportunity to be encouraged week after week. God does wonderful works for us. Psalm 119 21, 118, 21 reminds us to be thankful for our salvation. It says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. We should be thankful for our salvation. And then really, we should be thankful for every situation we find ourselves in. In Ephesians 5, 20, Paul reminds us that we should be giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thankful for all things, even when it's things, obviously, that we aren't always so prone to be thankful for. We might have something go not so great for us uh, where it's tough to be thankful, uh, but God still wants us to be grateful people. And we can praise him for whatever he's doing. A lot of times we have no idea how he's using something in our life that seems terrible, seems unwelcome and unfortunate, but God is using it for good, and we should praise him and give him thanks. And a person in Israel 
could give thanks to God by offering a peace offering, remembering what God has done and considering his blessings and gifts. So we should do the same. We should be thankful people. And and I think the challenge for us here is to be more expressive about this, to be thanking God even out loud in our, and, and in our hearts. But when things happen, we should make a concentrated effort to thank God for those things. Tell someone else why you're thankful. Express thanks. Tell someone in your family why you're thankful for something God has done. Uh, use an opportunity to, any opportunity that comes up to express thanks. And that encourages others. They see you as a thankful believer. You're challenging them to be more thankful for what God's doing. And you're having that heart attitude you're giving God that heartfelt response that he desires and thank him uh, for his blessings and his provision and just his work in your life. So we respond with thanksgiving. That was one uh, reason a person in Israel would have done this, a worshiper. And another one is we respond with joy. We respond with joy. In Leviticus 7.16, it's explaining uh, a reason someone could offer this. And it was because of a vow, vow, V-O-W, not vowel, but a vow, like a promise. It says in Leviticus 7.16, But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice, but on the next day the remainder of it also may be eaten. So a vow was a promise. We think of vows today, I think the main way we really just use it are like uh, wedding vows, Uh, just to talk about you're making a commitment to this person you're marrying you're making a promise to them and the people of Israel could make vows to God they weren't required uh, to do but a person could pledge to give God something you could even pledge to to give yourself to God Uh, Hannah's husband Elkanah in 1st Samuel uh, he fulfilled a vow every year and took his family to offer sacrifices. He had made a promise to God and was fulfilling this vow. Uh, so people could just want to give God something and make a promise, they would do it. Um, and as believers, we can also just want to give something to God out of joy. We want to give God our worship because we're joyful for what he's done for us. And there's some overlap here with thanksgiving, obviously, but we have two different words, thanks and joy. When we think about rejoicing, it's just what makes you glad and happy about God and what he's done? Does God make you happy? Do you feel any happiness over what God's doing in your life and what he's done for you? He's made a relationship possible, a relationship of peace, and he's given us hope of eternal life and fulfilled promises. And scripture talks about joy, different reasons we should be joyful people. We should be joyful, we should respond with joy when the gospel is proclaimed. When we hear about missionary reports or a missionary gives an update, we should be glad that God has put them in a place where they're sharing the gospel. Or if someone you know, someone in your church family or you has an opportunity to share Christ and you find out about that, you should be happy about that. We should be excited that people are hearing about Christ. That's wonderful news that the gospel is going forth, that seed is being sown. That should get us excited as believers. Paul said in Philippians 1.18 that Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. He was just glad, even when it wasn't under ideal circumstances, uh, that the gospel was being preached. If people were doing it with bad motives, he was just glad the gospel was preached. 
We should be glad when the gospel is preached. And here in church, when the gospel is proclaimed, you're being reminded of the truths of the gospel. That should make us excited and encouraged that God has done something wonderful. We also see in scripture that we should rejoice, not so fun for us, but rejoice when we suffer. When we suffer. A lot of times in the New Testament when they're talking about suffering, it was people suffering on account of the gospel because they were suffering persecution. And Paul in, in the New Testament talks about the need to rejoice in those circumstances. He said, and not only that, this is in uh, Romans 5, he says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And even if we're not suffering for the gospel, just if we're suffering for any reason, we can always be reminded that hope lies ahead, and that still does that work in us. God is working in us to produce perseverance and character under difficulty, and we can hope and long for the final peace that we will enjoy for all eternity. So we rejoice when we suffer. We rejoice, according to Second John, when we see others obeying God's truth. This should make us happy. In Second John 1.4, he writes, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received a commandment from the Lord. And as a, a parent, it gives a parent, a Christian parent, joy to see their kids obeying Christ. But just as believers, when we see others obeying and walking with God, that should make us excited and happy that people are being faithful, that God really does change lives and he changes his people uh, to become more like Christ and to act uh, in a way they would not have before they were saved. So we rejoice over that. And then again, just like we did for thanks, that we should always be thankful, we should really always be joyful. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Philippians 4.4, Tell us to rejoice always. Rejoice always. We should be the most joyful people on earth, not the glum and down and depressed and discouraged all the time. We should be joyful because we know God and we trust God and that he's doing wonderful things and we should express that joy. Look for opportunities to express that joy. Be the first to volunteer when everyone's going around the table at Thanksgiving to talk about why you're thankful. Talk about what God is doing why that makes you joyful. And thirdly here, so we respond with thanksgiving, we respond with joy, and third of all, we respond with humility. We respond with humility. So a worshiper could present this offering as a free will offering. Really, anytime they wanted to offer the sacrifice, very often they could just do this, a worshiper, a person of Israel, could do this because they wanted to express uh, make their expression known to God of, of thanksgiving and joy. And the people of Israel could do this. David in the book of Psalms promised to offer a free will offering to thank God for rescuing him from his enemies. He just wanted to offer this of his own free will. He says, I just want to do this. Out of my own free will, you're not asking for this. But because you rescued me, I want to give you praise with this sacrifice. You could offer this to show God that you recognized his exalted position, that he is Lord. He is the Lord God over all, all creation. And you want to show him that you're submitting to his authority. In short, this, this was a sacrifice to offer the recognition that to show God, to express to God that you recognize he is Lord over all, he is master, and we are his servants. And we 
express our humble devotion by giving him our praise, our worship. Many years later in Israel's history from Leviticus, you have to fast forward quite a, a bit through the Old Testament. Many years later in the history of God's people, there was a prophet named Amos, and Amos would tell the people of Israel that peace offerings alone meant nothing. A peace offering with just an outward expression meant nothing to God. And he writes in uh, Amos 5, 22 through 24, this is, he's speaking for God here as the mouthpiece for God. He says, though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings, the one we're talking about this morning. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. The people of Israel during this time were offering God's sacrifices. They were performing these outward acts of worship, but it was just an empty ritual. They had no heart for God. They would offer these sacrifices, go home and sin and live uh, like an unsaved person. They, they had no heart for God. They, they were just doing this with no love, no devotion for God. And God says, I don't want just your outward devotion. I don't just want you to go through this empty ritual. Don't fulfill my commandments if you don't have any heart for me, if you're not doing this out of faithful obedience. He wanted a heartfelt response. Remember, he wanted their kidneys, their heart. And God deserves our praise because of what he's done. He deserves more than empty outward acts of worship. We praise him with an inward response to his mighty deeds. We praise him for his excellent greatness. And we do this with humility, recognizing that he is great and that we are not. He deserves all of our praise. The book of Ezekiel tells us in the future that sacrifices will have an important role. So we've been looking backwards in the Old Testament. Now just a quick look ahead to what lies ahead. In the book of Ezekiel, God tells us that in the millennial kingdom, Israel is going to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings to God in Ezekiel 46. And some people say, and they dismiss this, they say, no way, why would we offer sacrifices in the millennial kingdom when Jesus has already come, he's fulfilled the law and the prophets, he was the perfect sacrifice, why would we do sacrifices? There's no way this is going to happen in the millennium. But we look at these sacrifices as commemorating the finished work of Christ. These will be reminders of what God has done in Christ. He's provided salvation and eternal life. And these acts of worship, these sacrifices, will be reminders of that in the millennial kingdom. These Old Testament sacrifices were rituals full of meaning and full of symbolism. And God gave them very specific rules to follow and how they had to carry these out. It was a very detailed process. You had to follow it to the T. And two rules now that we're going to center on are going to teach us even more about the significance of enjoying peace with God. And the first of these comes from Leviticus 3.16, where it says, And the priest shall offer them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. So here we're going to see that God demands the best. God demands the best. He offers us peace, but he demands 
the best. So a worshiper in ancient Israel could present an animal, a bull, a lamb, or a goat, and they kept a lot of this meat for themselves, but God did have some rules about what they could and couldn't have, and one of these rules here we see is that all the fat went to God. All the fat went to God. Now I want to point out something here. I, I uh, gave Frank Quinlan there in the back a last minute request. I think this is going to work. I asked him if he could put a picture up about an animal, but before he does, I don't think he's done yet. Wait, don't do it. Is it too late? Did I stop you? Okay. Caught him just in time. Oh, too late. Okay. I was going to ask you to, think, to picture a sheep in your mind, and I know if you would have done that, it would not have been this, this kind of sheep. If you look up, you don't, don't do this now on your phone unless you really want to, but you could look up a fat-tailed sheep, and this is in, uh, in Leviticus 3.9, it talks about the fat tail, and when you're picturing a normal sheep, you don't picture a sheep probably with a very fat tail. Normal sheep I think of, I don't even picture much on their tail uh, from what I've seen, but back uh, there and even today in the Middle East, in the Middle East they have, oh, there's a lot of varieties of these, this wheel on the cart thing was probably not super common. This is just kind of making the point here that these tails could be some big fat tails on these sheep. They could reach up to 15 pounds or more on this, these varieties of sheep that the people of Israel would, would have been uh, raising. So this is why fat comes a little more into play here because this is one of the animals that was worshipped and the fat from this sheep uh, was something that had to go to God. Whether it was a, a bull or a lamb or a goat, the fat belonged to God. And today, we, th we think of fat as something we should probably stay away from. We don't want to, to, to take too much fat in our diet. Uh, but God has a much more positive view of this substance. As you, look at, as you look at fat, again, it doesn't spell out explicitly here why fat belongs to the Lord, but it does make it known that consequences for eating it were serious. If you eat this fat, you were in trouble. Leviticus 7.25 says, For whoever eats the fat of the animal, of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, the person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. That sounds pretty serious. You were kicked out of the, the people of Israel if you broke this rule and ate this fat. And to make things a little more interesting, the fat surrounding the internal organs that was offered it's probably not something anyone would have wanted to eat. You don't want to chew on a bunch of fatty, fatty gristle. Why, though, did God want the fat? Why did he demand all the fat for himself? And while it doesn't spell out explicitly uh, why God wanted the fat, we do see in, in Scripture that uh, there's a theme surrounding fat, and it's that fat was thought of as the best. When people said, I want the fat, that's like you want the best of something. When uh, Pharaoh told Joseph to bring his family into Egypt, Pharaoh in Genesis 45 said that the Joseph's people, his family, would eat the fat of the land. That's probably a phrase you've heard before if you've been in, uh, reading the Bible long enough. The fat of the land, the best the land has to offer. That was the fat. Uh, and in Deuteronomy 32, uh, Moses spoke of the best wheat, and translations differ on they don't always say fat uh, there, but when Moses says that, uh, talking about the best of the wheat there, he's talking about the fat of the wheat, just the best. So people most likely equated fat with the very best of something, and that's why God gets it. It's the very best. The best goes to God because God deserves the best. He is holy. 
and righteous. He rules the universe. He has the right to demand the best from us, which he does. He demands perfection from us, righteousness, that we can't meet on our own, but Christ can. And we can have a righteous standing before God because of Christ. But God demanded the best from the people of Israel. Even for them, he demanded their best by them upholding his law. And he wanted them to be righteous and in maintaining the, the law of being ceremonially clean. Even when we read in Leviticus 7 about how they had to come to partake of this meal for the sacrifice. They had to be ceremonially clean if they were going to eat this meat. In Leviticus 7, 19 through 21, they had to maintain God's standards of holiness. And we know that uh, in order to have peace with God, this standard has to be met. God demands the best. He demands perfection and righteousness. And that is what Christ did for us so that we could meet that standard. He met it for us. God uh, sees Christ and sees that that standard in Christ has been met, that standard of perfection. So God demands the best, and he requires a payment. This is the, the, the third point here. God requires a payment. Leviticus 3.17, it says, This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. So now we see another prohibition, another substance that the people could not eat. The first was fat, second was blood. Couldn't eat an animal's blood. And again, the consequences for this were serious. If you ate the blood, you were again cut off, just like you were for eating the fat. Why didn't God want his people to eat blood? And the book of Leviticus does give us much more here on why, uh, why the people were not supposed to eat blood. <clears throat> In Leviticus 17, 10 through 12, I'll read a passage here, to, and it spells out uh, an important detail about blood. It says, In whatever man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So really we see two reasons here why God says to the people of Israel not to eat blood. And the first of these is that blood stands for life. A creature cannot live without blood. God takes life seriously and he wants his people to do the same. So he says, don't eat blood. All the way back in Genesis, we see that blood is necessary for life. And that's pointed out here, uh, where he says, the life of the flesh is in the blood in Leviticus 17, 11. But also, according to this passage, is that blood, not only does it mean life, but blood means death. Because according to this passage, blood makes atonement. In Israel, the offering was God's way of allowing a sinner to have a peaceful relationship with God. An innocent animal had to die in place of a guilty sinner. And the blood symbolized that animal's life. And you have to, if you look back at the burnt offering in Leviticus 1, you see that spelled out. Um, and these New Old Testament sacrifices were bloody 
rituals, messy rituals where there was blood flying. You see it being sprinkled on the altar. and There was a lot of blood that was shed. And that was a very vivid reminder of that animal dying in the place of the person who rightfully deserved that death. And the New Testament teaches us, as we look at the New Testament, it spells this out and it's explaining these, uh, the Old Testament, uh, making that, that picture of what was being looked forward to. It's being spelled out more clearly for us. We see that, there, that blood makes peace possible between us and God, something that animals could not achieve. Those animal sacrifices could not do it once and for all what the precious blood of Christ did for us. That's in in Colossians where it talks about Christ having made peace through the blood of his cross. He reconciled us to himself. God did that work because of the shed blood of Christ. God made peace possible, but it took blood. Jesus died on the cross. None None of this could have happened. None of this peaceful relationship we experience could happen without Christ's death, without blood shed for us. We, as God's enemies, uh, can experience peace so that we're no longer enemies. We're God's children, his, his friends, and we have peace with him through the blood of our Savior. And there's something we do as a church. This isn't at all, I don't think we would partake of this ordinance in the church and, and necessarily think that we're doing anything like an, a sacrifice because we're not uh, Roman Catholics and this, this isn't some sacrifice, but we participate in the Lord's Supper to remember a sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of our Savior, our Lord and Savior who, who died for us. There's bread, there's what we drink is grape juice to remind us of that blood. And what goes on when we participate in that Lord's Supper is this, this symbolic meal. It unites us as a body, as a church. We remember together what Christ did for us, shedding his blood as the perfect sacrifice for us, laying down his body, that sacrifice for us that made peace possible. So when we participate in the Lord's Supper, this is an opportunity for us to express thanksgiving to God for the perfect sacrifice, once and for all, final sacrifice of Jesus who died for us because he requires a payment. Blood had to be shed in order for us to have peace with God. And that was the blood of Christ. God is so good to bless us with peace through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Our God is the God of peace, as Hebrews calls him in Hebrews 13. So we respond, we must respond to God with thanksgiving, with joy, with humility. And there's other responsibilities we can, we can see from Scripture that uh, challenge us. And this is where we'll, where we'll conclude with these challenges. As Christians, we're new creations. We have a relationship with God. We were his enemies. Now we're his children. We've been reconciled to God. And now we have a responsibility because of that. In Second Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Here's a responsibility for us. 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul and his co-workers were ambassadors for Christ. They experienced this reconciliation, this peace with God, and they represented Christ as ambassadors. And he says, we have this same responsibility. We are ambassadors with a ministry of reconciliation, pleading with others to be reconciled to God. And that's what we do when we share the gospel. We've experienced this. We plead with others as ambassadors to do the same so they can experience that, so that they can trust in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. So we have that responsibility. We also have a responsibility to be peaceful people because we've experienced peace. God's word calls us to be at peace with one another. Romans 12, 18 challenges us to live peaceably with everyone as much as possible. Hebrews 12 tells us to strive for peace with everyone. God made peace with us, horrible sinners, rebels bent against him. Now as believers, new creatures together, we should be peaceful with one another in the church, with the body of Christ. We should be peaceful as much as possible to those outside of the body of Christ, striving to be peaceful people. That's another way to be ambassadors of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ, is to be a peaceful person with a good testimony, striving for peace so that you can share the word of peace that, that is the gospel. Okay, and then lastly, this is the one you can do immediately. You can, as this sacrifice would have reminded the people of Israel, as they would have partaken of this meal together, as an opportunity to thank God for the peace that every believer can enjoy. Thank God for the peace that he's made possible and reflect on it, think about it, dwell on it. As you get ready for Thanksgiving and you enjoy that food, as you have any opportunity, be mindful of what God has done. It's easy to, to take it for granted, even just to say the words and thank God, just going through an outward motion. But thank God, give him a heartfelt response of genuine feeling and meaning that you are truly thankful for what he's done in Christ who shed his precious blood for us. Let's close the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful reminder of these sacrifices in Leviticus, a book we overlook all too often that uh, can teach us so much and that uh, you gave to the people of Israel for their worship manual to a large degree for what they were supposed to do. And we thank you that we can learn from it and apply it to our lives. We ask that you would make us thankful people first and foremost for the peace that you've made possible through Christ. We thank you that we're no longer your enemies under wrath. We thank you that now uh, you're working in us and through us. Please do that work and encourage us as we serve you faithfully. Please grow this body uh, in uh, conformity to Christ, that they would be peaceful people, uh, just dwelling on the, the wonderful blessing of peace. We ask this in Christ's name, the Prince of Peace. We ask this in his name, amen.